Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Cozy On Up and NC Cardinal. Each episode is a journey through a cozy mystery theme or author that is available in NC Cardinal. I look at the author's bio, their series information, the character snippets that kind of help flesh out what we're looking at, because sometimes, you know, you connect to a story if you see yourself reflected in it. Favorite quote? No spoilers, though. Book readability, you know, does it grab your attention? Does it have an annoying character? Confusing plot holes? And lead character plausibility on why they got involved in the investigation. You know, what were the steps that were involved? Does it make sense or does it seem annoying? And then the plausibility or guessability of the crime. Can you figure it out? Does it seem like there's too many red herrings and it's annoying? You know, or is it just keep you on the edge of your seat all the way till the end? So feel free to join our Goodreads group or Amazon Book Club groups to discuss and recommend other cozy mysteries to your fellow cozy mystery lovers. We also have a Pinterest board if you'd like to follow along there and grab a digital copy of the handout that I make for each theme for our local patrons. Links to all of this will be in the podcast episode description. For more cozy mystery info and resources, there will be three links in the episode description for Fantastic Fiction. CozyMystery.com and CozyMysteriesUnlimited.com. There's a lot of Kindle Unlimited options for this uh, theme we've been looking at. Uh, started at the first of the month with farm to table, so anything where they're growing the food, selling the food. A lot of times the trend seems to be they grow it and then they sell it at a general store or at a farmer's market, or they grow it and then they use it at a restaurant. Sometimes all three. Uh, so we've kind of had a bit of a lot of overlap with this. And there's a lot of Kindle Unlimited uh, books that fit this theme. Uh, so they're tagged in the Amazon Book Club group. If you're in there, there's like over 20 uh, series that kind of fit this farming, farm-to-table restaurant, uh, you know, orchards, all those uh, different overlapped themes. There are some other titles that we haven't had time to get to that are available in NC Cardinal. The Food Lovers Village Mystery Series by Leslie Budowitz. The Garlic Farm Mystery Series by Jen Jones. The Cranberry Cove Mystery Series by Peg Cochran. The Nuthouse Mystery Series by Elizabeth Lee, and that is a cute name for a pecan farm series, or pecan, depending on where you're at. You might have pronounced it different ways growing up. And the Blackwoods Farm Inquiry, that's the title. It's a part of the Ivy Beasley Mystery Series. It's number five by Ann Purser. All those are also in NC Cardinal. We just don't have time to look at them this time, but I'd love to look at them in the future because I have really enjoyed this topic. Found a lot of new series that are really good. We've also discussed peach and peach tree and cherry farms uh, during the August 2021 and the February 2022 podcast. The August one was on peaches and pie, uh, peaches, and then the February one was on pie. So both of those kind of included some some orchard discussions as well because of their focus on you know pies. They had different fruits that got used, and then of course with peaches. But today we've got several to look through. I'm going to be starting kind of doing our usual. Most recent to oldest. So we're going to start with Dead on the Vine. This was published in April 2020. It's book number one in a Thin Family Farm mystery series. Very catchy. By L. Brooke White. This is set in California. So the overview for this book and kind of getting your feet wet on the series is Charlotte Finn never wanted to inherit the family's produce farm which she does via her great uncle Tobias Finn. Much less have to plow a heap of money into it. After leaving Chicago to come out to Little Acorn, California, 
Her plan is to hammer a great big for sale sign into the farm's fallow furrows. But Charlotte's sunny hopes of a quick sale succumb to a killing frost when she finds the dead body of Marcus Cordero entwined supine in the tomato vines. This author clearly is great at alliterations. The poor man, it seems, was run through. With a pitchfork? Ugh. Now Charlotte is stuck with running the farm in the midst of a murder investigation. Charlotte's knowledge of farming is smaller than her bank balance, so she relies on caretakers Joe and Alice Wong and their farmhands. Can she trust them? She doesn't know them. There's also farmer Samuel Brown, who still carries a childhood grudge. But the case gets personal when Charlotte learns that the victim might have been her own kin. Maybe a secret love child between great-uncle Tobias and the love of his life, Hera? Maybe? And seeds of suspicion start to grow in, the, in a fertile field of suspects. Charlotte turns to the farm's pig, which is actually named horse because he eats like a horse, to help root out the killer. Soon, the goats, the geese, and a ladybug nicknamed Mrs. Robinson, and a horse, an actual horse, join in. But will Har Charlotte harvest a murderer or buy the farm? So I'll post the series information. There's two books in it currently. Uh, they're available at NC Cardinal. I'll post author information links as well in the podcast description. She was born in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and became a world traveler at a young age when her family moved to Europe. She grew up in Paris, Brussels, and London until she returned to the U.S. to attend Vassar College. She then moved to New York City with the hopes of becoming a renowned actress, but instead took a job in advertising. So the general outline of the series seems to be autobiographical, given her book flap, you know, this biography says that she was in New York with a job in advertising until she moves to Southern California. I mean, she did that in her own life. So the only difference is Chicago for Miss um, Charlotte Finn, but still it's a big city and it's advertising and marketing and then moving to Southern California. So clearly drawing out upon her experience. So she, she should, you know, be pretty good at what she's describing here because she's actually living it. Um, kind of some character story snippets to help flesh out, flesh it out a bit more. Um, Charlotte has a friend, Diane, who is a spectacular cook and another friend, Bo, who is a master event planner and they've been friends since childhood. So you kind of can see where this is going. You got someone who's a master event planner, someone who's a spectacular cook. They all wind up staying and helping her with maybe a restaurant, clearly some major community events. So they're going to help make sure the farm survives. There's also Wade Avery and his hooligan brother, as they describe it in the book, who make snide comments over they're going to be taking the farm over soon. Uh, maybe they're a suspect, maybe not. Farmer Samuel Brown, who doesn't get along with the distributor, uh, distributor Sergey Anderson. There's a good reason. Sergey is shorting payments to pay for his wife Annabelle's high-class spending. And maybe his mistresses. Also, Samuel Brown is feuding, as had her great-uncle, so that's where he picked it up from, uh, with the Avery brothers. But he has his own reasons. Because Wade had tripped Samuel during a race and broken his Samuel's ankle and the ligaments resulting in a limp. There's also really kind of oily-looking Max Lurvy, a realtor who seems sketchy as he doesn't have a business card nor state who he represents. So how did he find about Charlotte thinking about selling when she was locked up in the bank's manager's office discussing it? How could he have overheard it? How could he have found out? So clearly something skeevy going on there. 
Then there's Joe and Alice Wong, who've lived on the property for eight years, helping her great uncle and now her run things. But what's up with Alice? What's going on? Something weird? Is she not happy? Is she nervous that Charlotte's going to sell? Hmm. We'll see. Then there's a female police chief. So this is a nice change uh, from most cozy mysteries. We have a female police chief called Chief Goodacre. And she has a female police officer called Maria. Both work with and support Charlotte in her in her issues that she's dealing with on the farm. So they take it seriously. They're looking into it. You know, they're not uh, putting Charlotte down. So a nice change of pace from uh, where most of the tension comes from in many cozy mysteries where either they're not being taken seriously by the local police department or they're being constantly discouraged, run off, or you know, yelped it because they found some evidence, found a body, uh, found some new information, had an idea, and, you know, and interviewed a suspect. So instead, we have a lot of support this time. So much more positive spin on that aspect. The book is interesting. It has some, some humor in it. Uh, so you get some laughs out of it. Kind of the plausibility on why the lead character suddenly gets involved in being an investigator, which he wasn't before. Well, major reason. The crime happened on her farm. And then, about 60% of the way through the book, there's a fire deliberately set with gasoline. So it becomes really critical in Charlotte's mind that she's got to find this killer before, you know, whatever this sort of anger and desperation that seems to be showing through actually starts destroying her farm totally or kills someone else. Because she's seen sabotage, strange, like, is it a coincidence? Is it not? Events, uh, like the lake filling with water while Samuel was in it working on it. This is their artificial lake. Um, her own head being hid in the basement. And then a sewer line in the basement being cut. You know, who has access to key? You know, keys and getting on her property? What is going on here? Who's doing this? It's becoming very dangerous to be around the farm. And you worry about who might get killed next. So Charlotte is kind of being pushed because everything's happening on her farm, including the first crime. Uh, there's a very useful, something I noticed that ironically happened in several of the books, totally wasn't expecting it, you know, hadn't picked them for that reason. But while I was reading, uh, noticed a couple of books this time in this set have this useful listing of kind of crimes and possible motivators, kind of like where the character sits down with a piece of paper and starts, you know, rehashing and writing things down. So as a reader, you kind of get a nice review before the final sprint of the last few pages where everything becomes clear. So on pages like 266 through 268, uh, Charlotte kind of works through everything in her mind and it helps you as a reader. I thought that was very nice. So the plausibility and guessability for the crime. Very plausible. Um, you know, this wasn't like, you know, a muskrat hiding in a hole that maybe hit a ditch or something else like very far-fetched. This is greed, desperation, spurned lovers, cheating, and theft. It's a very toxic cocktail lots of different things happening and hmm, more than one criminal maybe something else that I noticed in several of the stories this time maybe one of the reasons as a reader you have a hard time narrowing it down is maybe there's more than one perpetrator in mind um, this was a very cute series I'd give it another try if one of the titles fit a future podcast theme so our next book is No Farm, No Fowl. And I was surprised it wasn't spelled F-O-W-L for chickens, because she does have chickens. But instead, it's just F-O-U-L. So No Farm, No Fowl, published September 2016. This is book number one in A Farmer's Daughter Mystery Series by Peg Cochran. Very cute cover. 
This series is set in Michigan. On her blog, The Farmer's Daughter, Shelby McDonald is growing her audience as she posts recipes, gardening tips, and her experiences raising two kids on her own and running Love Blossom Farm in a small western Michigan town called Lovett. Working the farm is demanding, but peaceful. Until that peace is shattered when the minister's wife, Prudence, is murdered on Shelby's property during a fundraiser for the local church. But the manure really hits the fan when Shelby's good friend, veterinarian Kelly Thacker, emerges as the prime suspect. Shelby decides to dig in and find the murderer by herself. As more suspects crop up, she'll have to move fast before someone else buys the farm. So series and author information links will be posted in the podcast description. There's three books in this series from 2016 to 2018. So this is completed. So it's the usual when it goes under contract, three, at least three, if not maybe four books are written before a series will end. So this is a three book series. It's available in NC Cardinal. Peg Cochran has been writing since she was seven years old. When she's not writing, she spends her time reading, cooking, spoiling her granddaughter, and checking her book's stats on Amazon. As a former Jersey girl, Peg now resides in Michigan, so now you can see where she said it, where she's familiar, in Michigan. She's the author of the Open Book series, written as uh, Margaret Loudon, Murder She Reported series, the Cranberry Cove series, and the Farmer's Daughter series, and the Gourmet Delight series, and the Lucille series, and the Sweet Nothings Lingerie series all written as Meg London. Character and story. Uh, well, actually, The Sweet Nothings is written as Meg London. The other ones are written under uh, Peg Cochran. So for the character and the story, we kind of have the overview, but the reason Shelby McDonald's on her own is her husband, William, um, nicknamed Wild Bill, McDonald died four years ago. She has two children. They're named Amelia, she's age 13, and Billy, age 8. She came to Love Blossom Farm 10 years ago when her parents retired. She runs a blog called Farmer's Daughter, which of course we can you can recognize from, well, there's, there's some country music songs that reference that phrase, you know, the Farmer's Daughter. But then there's also the uh, classic movie Farmer's Daughter. Um, we actually own it here at the library. So you can kind of see where the inspiration came from. Very cute title. Um, the blog itself that Shelby is writing is actually included in the narrative. She doesn't just like mention, oh, let me sit down and write a blogcast episode and you never see. Um, instead, her blog episodes narrative, you know, is put in italics and offset and it's included at the starts of chapters or segments later on inside of a chapter. This kind of helps you as a reader get additional commentary, kind of neat summaries of events. You know, so you can help follow along or refresh yourself if you have to set the book down for a few days. She sells produce at the Lovett General Store along with cheese that she makes. The General Store is owned by Matt Hudson, who left New York City after the September 11th tragedy. Tra ah, my tongue. Tragedy. He is set as a possible romantic interest for Shelby whenever she may be interested in dating again. Shelby also owns Patches, an old calico cat, and two dogs. There's also a neighboring dairy farmer who's another possible romantic interest and their recipes at the end of the book. So, book readability. It was a fresh new way to approach the cozy mystery genre because having these blog entries um, included, you know, was nice little 
touch to make it different. And there's also no active antagonism with the local investigator, investigators. So kind of like our, our book um, looking at, um, gosh, uh, Dead on the Vine. So it's kind of nice for a change of pace to actually have support, no you know, obvious antagonism with the local investigators. So one of my favorite quotes from this book, um, pages like 149, uh, is indicative of kind of this warmth, down home, down to earth, you know, real life, what you're having to deal with as a single parent, single mother, having a farm, raising children, especially one that's a teenager, you know, a whole nother set of hormones when it happens there. Kind of, I liked how this, this one quote, this one page kind of encapsulated the way things are in this story and how things are written. So... Shelby, of course, is having to raise them on their own, on her own, after their father died. And this quote is, I didn't expect you to be home, Shelby said to Amelia. Her eyes were on her daughter's face. Kaylee had to go to the dentist, Amelia said, her eyes kind of sliding to the right of Shelby's. Let's sit down, Shelby said, pointing towards the living room. She took a seat on the couch, and Amelia perched on the edge of the armchair opposite. She kind of looked wary and plucked at a loose thread on the the row that was draped over the arm. You weren't really at Kaylee's house this afternoon, were you? Amelia looked momentarily shocked, and then a mulish look came over her face. I was too. She crossed her arms over her chest. I don't see why you won't believe me. You keep thinking I'm with some boy. Shelby gave the ghost of a smile. Some boy named Ned Walters? I saw his mother pick you up this afternoon. Amelia's jaw dropped, and her eyes turned round as pennies. You were spying on me? Hardly. I happened to walk outside as Mrs. Walters was pulling out of the driveway. Amelia's face took on an even more mulish look. If you weren't so old-fashioned and would let me date, I wouldn't have to go behind your back, she shot back. Shelby sighed. Twelve is too young to date. I'm almost thirteen. Thirteen is also too young. I wouldn't mind if you went to school to a school event with a boy, but real dating will have to wait until you're a little older. I'll be ancient by then, and I'll never get a boyfriend. Amelia burst into tears and stomped up the stairs to her room. So you kind of get this sense of, this isn't just going to be solving a crime, but there's the real life as life aspects as well, and it's well written. It, it really sucks you in. Um, kind of the plausibility on why, with everything she has to handle with the farm and her children, why is she investigating as well? Well, for Shelby, the murder happens in her mudroom. It's in her house. She's not actively investigating, so it's not like, you know, seeing a little Miss Marple going around the village. Instead, this is, she's kind of like naturally curious and she's noticing discrepancies in people's stories or things that she saw at the fundraiser. Or she has ideas on how to maybe figure out or eliminate someone as a suspect or find a new suspect and try and help her friend be eliminated as a suspect. So it's not like an active investigation, you know, flipped open her notebook, going around Chat, chat, you know, checking out people, but it kind of gradually builds, um, which is nice. It's, it's, it's a nice slow build, and you're suddenly like, wait a minute, she's here investigating. Um, so it's not obvious. Her brother-in-law is the local detective, and she doesn't tell Frank much about what she's thinking or doing, and he doesn't interfere with her much as well when she's investigating. But ironically, he's her third love interest possibility. Like, it's a possibility there, at least on his side. So, book crime, plausibility, and guessability. Well, we clearly have a love quadrangle going on, at least for future um, episodes. 
But how did the crime get mentioned? Because we have the family life and drama well written, but what about the other stuff? One of the things I kind of found sort of weird was like how much she's posting in these blogs, how many details about like her life, what she's doing, her investigation thoughts. Um, yet all these townspeople, while they mention having, you know, oh, I saw you were offering a class and I signed up or I, I've just used your recipe and I love it. They act like they haven't seen her other words. Um, if you were a criminal who was worried that Shelby was investigating, you'd be following her on her blog and you'd know exactly where she was going to be that day, you know, what she was doing, why she was doing it. I don't know. I'll have to, you'd have to read a few more to see like how it worked out. Um, but when looking at the crime, you have to start asking yourself, was it blackmail? You know, why would the minister's wife get killed? Was it Prudence's husband getting rid of her so he could be with someone else? Was Prudence a serial blackmailer of other people? So someone blackmailing her, was, was she blackmailing other people? Was she falsely accusing other people way too much? Because she'd done it three times in the last three years. Was it Prudence's son Wallace from her prior marriage? Who knows? Overall, personal opinion about whether I'd read more of this. It was interesting, so I wouldn't be opposed to it. We just have to see if we need it for like a future um, podcasting episode. If we, especially if we jump back into Farm to Table again next year, because we've got so many more to look at, maybe we'll pick up with a few of these that we really liked and see how the second book turns out in the series. Okay, up next is a muddied murder. This was published March 2016. This is book one in a greenhouse mystery series by Wendy Tyson. This is set in Pennsylvania. So the story goes, when Megan Sawyer gives up her big city law career to care for her grandmother and run the family's organic farming cafe, she expects to find peace and tranquility in her scenic hometown of Winsome, Pennsylvania. Instead, her goat goes missing, rain muddies her fields, the town denies her business permits, and her family's colonial-era farm sucks up the remains of her savings. Just when she thinks she's reached the bottom of the rain barrel, Megan and the town's hunky veterinarian discover the local zoning commissioner's battered body in her barn. There's a lot of rhymes. Now, Megan is thrust into the middle of a murder investigation, and she's the chief suspect. Can Megan dig through small-town secrets, local politics, and old grievances in time to find a killer that before that killer strikes again. So book series and author information links uh, will be posted in the podcast description. There are six books in this series, uh, 2016 to 2020. They're available in NC Cardinal, including some in large print. I listened to this as an audiobook. It was a good narrator, I enjoyed it. Like initially when you start listening, you might be like, I'm not sure if this is going to work, you know, with the, or the um, narrator's tone or the way she just sounds, I guess, really, since all you're doing is just listening, the, the sound of it. But it actually works really well. Um, the author, Wendy Tyson, is, of course, she's a writer, but she's also a lawyer and a former therapist whose background has inspired her thrillers and mysteries. So under the pseudonym Liv Anderson, she writes thrillers, including The Little Red House. Under her name of Wendy Tyson, she is the author of several mystery series, including the best-selling Greenhouse Mystery Series that we're reading today. Wendy's short fiction has appeared in literary journals and crime anthologies, and she's a member of the International Thriller Writers, the Mystery Writers of America, and Sisters in Crime. 
She and her husband live in the beautiful Green Mountains of Vermont with their sons and their three dogs. So kind of some additional character and story snippets so that we kind of have a sense of what's going on. Don't really have anything listed there. Um, it's one of the downsides of listening online. Kind of what I find interesting is Denver the veterinarian. Um, he's got his own past troubles and issues. She has hers, but they're working through it together. So they show some some excellent, you know, communication, you know, the actual raw honesty of having to work through possibly be, being interested in someone. So this is a more, you know, one person as a possible romantic interest, at least on her side, um, Megan's side. But there's a lot of, you know, family frustration, her past issues with her father and other family members that were strange, but are they back now? Um, you know, who has done what? Who's a suspect? Who isn't? Um, I really loved listening to this. Um, there was a good mix of drama, mystery, family issues, some actual like colonial revolutionary era history, and even some later civil war, romantic interests, and danger all mixed together. So it made it a very easy read. There was always something going on. Another aspect of the story kind of being illuminated. So it was really interesting. Um, kind of on page 97, it kind of, I thought, encapsulated how this author is able to mix in, you know, learning more about these characters and family and family history and how we just as humans can sometimes get frustrated and have struggles with other family members. Kind of also encapsulate, encapsulates her aunt, her uh, grandmother BB's personality and the, you know, the author's kind of raw, honest discussion of human behavior, which she does quite a, quite a bit and quite well. And mixing in this sort of family history and the just general mystery that they're trying to solve of who killed the guy at her barn. So this is the quote. BB was madly cheerful the entire way home, and this is after they've left the police station when BB got interrogated. What happened in there? Megan asked. BB waved her hand in a dismissive gesture that was becoming much too familiar. Ah, oh, nothing worth wasting breath on. Megan glanced at her grandmother from across the truck's bench seat. Something went down in there. I remember when that Bobby King, when he was a toddler in plastic. I remember that Bobby King, when he was a toddler in plastic pants, he needs to feel important, so he's asking questions, most of which have nothing to do with Simon's murder. Rest assured about that. She looked pointedly at Megan. He asked and I answered is all. They pulled up to a red light separating Canal Street from Baker Avenue. Megan shot her grandmother another look, taking advantage of the traffic stop to ask her the question that had been most on her mind. Baby. How'd you explain the bloody glove? Her grandmother stared straight ahead. What bloody glove? I know about the bloody glove. Bobby King told me about the bloody glove. The light turned green and Megan inched forward, reluctantly taking her gaze off of her grandmother. Stay warm and winsome. Who else would own those gloves? And that's a phrase. There's a lot of uh, phrases from her father's former business put on merchandise that has like the town's name of Winsome all through it. Her grandmother replies, plenty of people. Megan grasped the steering wheel so hard her knuckles turned white. Why won't you be straight with me? She asked, softening her tone. What's going on? But her grandmother only gave her a gentle smile. I didn't kill anyone, Megan, nor did you. I have souvenir shop stuff 
everywhere. You know that. If someone found one of those gloves and used it to do something evil, that has nothing to do with me or you. You have a farm to get off the ground. Stop worrying about this and get to work. Someone died in our barn. And there's not a thing on God's green earth you can do about it. For the first time in her life, Megan felt anger, true boiling anger, toward her grandmother. Maybe not, she said, but I'm not one to sit around. No one is asking you to sit around, B.B. said calmly. She reached across the center console and touched Megan's arm, her skin dry and feathery light. I'm only asking you to trust me. So you kind of get a sense of how much, you know, Megan, through her own questions and her own investigation, is trying to understand what's going on and who may be involved and what does her grandmother know and, you know, what about her dad and, you know, what has happened in Winsome in all the years since she's been there? You know, who's changed? Who's moved in? You know, what is she not noticing? Who would have wanted to kill someone? So you can kind of get a sense of that there. Some of the mystery is stretched out because people aren't explaining it or telling her things, and she keeps having to dig and dig and dig. Um, but it's written well. Um, the plausibility on why, you know, Megan suddenly jumps into becoming an investigator. Well, for one, it happened on her land and in her barn. And then there's a number of strange happenings and sightings that points to someone or more than one person still snooping around, along with this historical commission's zoning efforts. Someone clearly desperately wants or wants in Washington Acres Farm. So they're trying to figure, she's trying to figure this out. She can tell it's definitely focusing on her land. Someone wants to be there. Someone's killed someone over something. But what is it? What is happening? The plausibility and the guessability for the crime. Desperation really becomes an obvious motive early on. Like, who's getting hit? The violence with which the crimes are happening. But the reason for that desperation, like, like, why are they so desperate? Is this, like, blackmail, secrets, money? Like, you know, what is it? Like, old family feuds. Well, clearly money is kind of coming to mind in some people's possible motives. Money, fame, solving some issues. But, well... This is an interesting thing with this cozy mystery. So I've noticed with several in this little set we've had this time, there's multiple people involved and they have different motives for the money slash, you know, fame and solution that they're hoping to come up with. There's also like in that, in the Judy Clemens book, we're going to, I'm going to mention in a second, lots of people who get arrested or her harmed in the end. So this impacts a lot of the town. My overall personal opinion about whether I'd read more. Well, I liked it. And I liked the audiobook, so I'd love to listen to another one if it fits any of our future podcast themes. So our next book is Town in a Blueberry Jam. Now, I have seen this book and this series pop up so much. I've been wanting to get a chance to do it, so it fit well. So I threw it in with our Farm to Table um, series that we've got going on this month. This was published in February 2010. It's book number one in a Candy Holiday Murder Mystery series by B.B. Haywood. That's a pseudonym. This is set in Maine. It's in the quaint seaside village of Cape Wilmington, Maine. And Candy Holiday has a mostly idyllic life, tending to the Blueberry Acres farm that she runs with her father, and occasionally stepping in to solve a murder or two. This is her first one. But Candy is as shocked as the rest of the locals when two murders occur back to back. When her friend, a local handyman, becomes a suspect, Candy investigates to clear his name. 
But sorting through the town's juicy secrets gets very sticky indeed. So series and author information links will be posted in the podcast description. There are eight books in this series, and it is concluded from what I can tell. It was published 2010 to 2017, eight books. The author researched Cape Elizabeth, Maine for the book, along with Merrill Blueberry Farms and Ellsworth, Maine. So this is based on actual research, going to visit, seeing, and talking to the owners. This is available in NC Cardinal, and it has a large print option as well that you can request. B.B. Haywood is actually a pseudonym of two, the writing team of Beth Freeman and Robert Feeman, not Freeman, Feeman and Robert Feeman. But I guess they've moved on to new projects because this series is concluded. The B.B. Haywood uh, pseudonym isn't being used for anything else right now. And the former website when this was an actively published series um, called uh, like the, I think it's like the Holiday Blueberry Acres website or something that they used to advertise this series under. It has closed. Um, it's no longer valid. Um, there are some old articles that reference, and they mention that there's no biographical information about either of those authors. So who knows where they've moved on to, if they've split up into different writing names, or they've got a new pseudonym. Don't know. Could not find anything else other than this pseudonym is no longer being used, and this is the only series for that. And there's a lot of people that are Beth Feeman author, and I have no idea. So character and story snippets kind of help flesh it out more. Candy got her name because she was born on Halloween. So that's coming up soon. We'll have a Halloween-themed podcast next month. Her nickname is also Pumpkin because of her Halloween birthday. She got divorced two and a half years ago. This is explained early on in the book on page 31, why the divorce happened and her circumstances surrounding that, so that she joined her father's farm because he came to visit her and was like, you need to come visit me. You know, you're really struggling right now you know, emotionally and, you know, with work, you know, being in interested in any more. And after, with her visit, she was like, yes, this is exactly what I need for a fresh start. So she sold where she was at and moved to help her dad. Her dad is Henry, nicknamed Doc Holiday. So <laughs> nice play on words there. He's actually not a medical doctor, but he's a former ancient history professor from a university in Maine. He and his group of older guy friends in town kind of form an information network that helps keep Candy informed or gives her some ideas and some help. It is a fascinating and mouth-watering list of blueberry products that they mentioned that this farm produces. Um, so if you come into this hungry, you may be wanting blueberries by the time you're done. Page 22 alone lists for this festival that's going to happen. She makes mini pies, regular sized pies, scones, cookies, jam, honey, syrup, butter, and muffins, all with blueberries. And she has reeds and garlands that have flesh, fresh blueberry sprigs in them. And she blueberry tie-dyes sets of t-shirts. And she makes blueberry soap. And she has gift baskets that combine several of these items together into one neatly wrapped package. Another local character is Ray Hutchins. He's the local handyman. He's somewhat differently abled. They're not it's not really clear in the book what they're trying to aim for, and it doesn't really matter. He's differently abled. He's a nice person. He clearly has an excellent skill with building things. But that makes it really just extra sad when he gets pinned with the second murder when it happens. Um, like, that's just, that's just extra cruelty and evil on the part of the murderer to 
to pin it on someone who may not be able to explain or defend themselves because they'll get so flustered and upset emotionally at having been in a new environment and accused of murder that no one understands and knows how to work with them. Um, he's Candy's uh, senior by 10 years, so he's 10 years older than her. And not really a romantic interest on her part. He's kind of got a personal crush on her, I think. And her dad's trying to set her up with him just to like be like, you know, you need to get out of your rut and get out and start seeing people again. You know, like sometimes dads and relatives try and do. Um, there are blueberry recipes at the end. So if you want to try some of those blueberry products, go for it. There's lots of recipes. Readability. Um, it's fascinating and that this is one of the rare cozy mysteries. This has happened before. Like once I can remember in one of some of the cozy mysteries we've done for podcasts where um, the book opens with a prologue and this prologue this time is written in the point of the view of the murdered victim, Jock Larson, who, despite your initial maybe listening to his uh, internal voice as he's thinking through things when his, you know, murder happens um, and the way people describe him in town you think he's like maybe some 20-something or 30-something, but instead you're going to probably be surprised to discover that he's 55 years old. So he's been at this sort of lifestyle for a while. And his name, Jock Larson, is kind of ironic because he is a bit of a jock. It also has a snippet included at the front of the book from the local newspaper, kind of formatted like a newspaper, which is a cute little feature, as the newspaper will be a key element of Candy's life going forward in future books. So... I wonder if they include newspaper snippets at the start or the end of future books in the series. That'd be something interesting to see. Surprisingly, you know, it opens immediately with a murder and no one has any clue of what's going on there. Who could have caused it? And then there's a second murder, this time of Sapphire Vine on page 96. So you're like, well, we've opened with a murder. And I'm starting to get used to all the townspeople learning what they're like, foibles, personality quirks, you know, the big blueberry festival, major issues, lots of humor, funny stuff. <gasps> Bam, another murder. So who's doing this? Is it the same person, different persons? And what is the motive that connects these two? What is Jock and Sapphire connection? So the lead character's plausibility on why she's involved in this investigation. So unlike with several of the ones we've had so far, that it's like, well, it happens in their house or on their property. So, you know, they're a suspect and they, um, you know, need to be involved in this. So instead of that, um, she uh, is a little worried initially when she hears that Ray has been accused of murder because they say his hammer did it. And she then gets flashbacks going, oh, well, the day before I was holding this hammer as I was helping him work on some stuff at our house. Um, is this, you know, if this is the murder weapon or my fingerprint's going to be on it, are they going to think I did it? So her initial thought is, well, maybe I'm going to be accused of it. Then... Then Clayton finds Sapphire's file on Candy in Sapphire's office and offers Candy, you know, Sapphire's old job. So maybe a cynical person in town is going to say, well, she's off to Sapphire in order to get her job. But actually, Sapphire's job pays so little. That's not really a good excuse or reason to think she might be a murderer. But basically, what it comes down to is that this terrible tragedy that someone has framed a mentally challenged man, Ray Hutchins, so that Candy and the wealthy woman in town, um, Mrs. Pruitt, both are trying to help Ray in any way that they can. And even Candy's dad does as well. So that's really their motive. Is they're trying to help a wonderful person in town who's being falsely accused of murder, but has no way of defending himself 
you know, at least well or competently um, so that, you know, are the police actually going to keep digging and finding something or are they just going to stick with what they've got because they, no one can understand what Ray is doing. So plausibility and guessability for the crime. Possible reasons. Did Sapphire bribe or blackmail the judges, um, you know, in order to win the Blueberry Queen pageant? Um, perhaps, you know, secrets that Sapphire had collected in her files for her, you know, what's happening local column in the newspaper. Maybe she collected one too many secrets. Uh, maybe she connected, collected something that someone didn't want found. Also, Sapphire Vine, don't worry, that's not her real name. Her real name is Susan Jane Vincent. So that's a whole other aspect of the story. Uh, David Squires, is he connected to Sebastian J. Quinn and why? And then Cameron Zimmerman, what's the connection with that? Why is he hanging around Sapphire Vine? And Herr George, what is his possible shady past with maybe a Nazi father? There's a helpful recap of possible motives on pages 218 and 219, so kind of like with uh, our first book. Helpful recap. Further revelations occur on page 241, and things move very quickly to start eliminating and clarifying each of those strands that got rehashed on 218 and 219. So this hardly seems like an over 200-page book, because you are just jumping from one to the other. You have the two murders. You're learning about all these fascinating townspeople, possible motives, and then eliminating motives. So everything kind of, you know, builds and then quickly races down the hill to the finish. Um, one of my favorite quotes kind of to refer back to this, you know, it's fun to read. There's humor. You know, these quirky townspeople. Well, let's... Let's have a little quote here from page 57 about Sapphire Vine's interaction with Ma um, Candy and her friend Maggie. So Sapphire Vine says, well, actually, her eyes shift quickly to Maggie. I'd ask how the diet's going, but I guess you're off it already, she said without a hint of meanness. Toodles! As she scurried away, Maggie clenched a fist and muttered with amazement. Did she just call me fat? Did she just say toodles? That woman knows no shame. She's out of control. She's more than that. She's a minister to society. Maggie's glare nearly burned a hole in the despairing back of Sapphire Vine. I swear, she said quietly, if she wins that pageant tonight, I'll kill her. I mean, I'll kill her. She shot a dark glance at Candy. You're with me on this one, right? Candy fingered a few strands of her hair, pulling them in front of her face so that she could check them for gray. There was none that she could see. That didn't mean they weren't there. Her brow lowered. I can't let you do it all alone and have all the fun, can I? Tell you what, if she wins, you hold the gun and I'll pull the trigger. So you kind of get the sense of this, you know, best friends, the humor, the frustrations, you know, small town, uh, you know, local busybodies who get all up in everyone's business that can frustrate a lot of people. But also, did she get killed for it, Miss Sapphire Vine? Who knows? I love this series, love the humor. It was well written, flew through it. So I'd love to read more if we need it for like a future podcast theme. So last book is Till the Cows Come Home. Uh, this is in April 2004. So a very, you know, way back, relatively speaking, um, at least in the cozy mystery genre. Um, early on books, not one of the last 10 or 15 years, much earlier. Uh, this is, well, maybe more towards the 15, but the last 10 years, there's been a veritable explosion of cozy mysteries. But this is book one in a Stella Crown mystery series by Judy Clemens. This is also set in Pennsylvania, just as we've had earlier in one of our other books. 
Stella Crown works hard and loves her life. She runs her Pennsylvania dairy farm with the trusted help of longtime farmhand Howie, who stuck with her after her parents died. She rides her Harley motorcycle on the weekends and has just enough friends to suit her fiercely independent nature. But on her 29th birthday, things start to change. A local child, Toby Durstein, who's around about age four to five, because he's about to start kindergarten, dies from a strange and threatening illness. Then there's a string of mysterious disasters taking place on Stella and her farm, putting them in peril, and her childhood friend Abe shows up with a new woman on his arm. Seems like bad luck runs amok, and when her livestock begins turning up dead, Stella knows something or someone is out to get her. So series and author information links will be included in the podcast description. There are six books in this series, published 2004 to 2013, the 2013 novel actually appears to be the last novel that Judy Clemens wrote. This series is available in NC Cardinal. Judy Clemens, according to her bio, lives in rural Ohio and is married with two children. She's best known for her Stella Crown and her Grim Reaper mystery series. Those are her two major series. Her first novel was nominated for the Agatha and Anthony Awards for Best First Novel, and I can see why. She wrote very well in this book. 2009 to 2010, she served as the president of the international literary organization Sisters in Crime. Clemens is also, has been a reviewer at the New York Journal of Books. She became that in 2018. So she clearly moved on to different things in her life after finishing this series. Um, further kind of character and story snippets to kind of give an idea of what's going on, kind of what to expect. Her dad died, Stella's dad died, in a farming accident when she was three. And her mom died of breast cancer by the time she was 16. One of the many story issues, like early on, like the first few pages where you're trying to like get sucked in and understand who, who all the players are going to be. Um, one of the moments is because we do jump immediately into a birthday party for Stella is there's too many J names in the family. So initially I was all like, I could not like in my mind go, oh yes, this name goes with this personality and this job and this name with that job and that personality. There was a little too many J-named um, brothers and cousins and other things going on. Um, there's a family birthday party from a local family, the Grangers nearby, who have adopted uh, Stella kind of as their adoptive daughter after she helped save one of the one of the brothers from, you know, almost drowning as a child. The matriarch of that Granger family is named Ma. That's her nickname. That's just what she's referred to, Ma. Then there's another, there's a wife that's a part of that family, Marianne. She's got an attitude problem. Then there's Abe and his girlfriend. You know, you kind of stand out with Ma, Marianne, and Abe and the girlfriend, but it takes, she's going to take you a while, at least it did me, when you go through the book. And don't worry, it'll eventually sort out all those J names, who is what and what they do. Um, you'll get it eventually, but those first few pages are rough. But there's also another person in town, Nick Hathaway who shows up offering to be a barn painter or a handyman. And he seems to be nervous when development or danger about, you know, the local dairy farmer's livelihoods keeps getting mentioned. But Stella also seems to be harboring some feelings for Abe Granger. So is Nick Hathaway or Abe Granger going to be a possible romantic interest? Who will win out? Will it be neither? Both? Will she still be trying to figure it out? We'll see. Then there's a flu that is going around. Or is it the flu? It seems to be just really young people, so the children in town, and really old people, which is the usual first round of people who catch it really horribly and possibly have to be hospitalized, um, which is why, you know, flu vaccines are so critical for those two age groups. 
But eventually they found out it is a fl aflatoxin, nicknamed killer fungus illness. And then there's a major um, antidote that's it's like a very long name. Um, Acetylocystine um, is the antidote for it. And they're trying to figure out where this is coming from. Then there's a Detective Willard. So you're like, oh, is he going to be antagonistic to her? No, he is just, poor guy, worn out. And he needs all the help he can get because his son is also one of the children who's afflicted with this illness that they're trying to sort out throughout the book. Now, the one who is antagonistic is Officer Meadows. Um, he's dismissive of Stella. You know, when she mentions that she's seen things that are happening on the farm, like cattle getting out and other things, he's like, oh, is that really such a crime? You know, is that really such a problem? Like, you're just going to need to hurt him back up and you'll be fine. He's very rude and dismissive about that. But his superior, Detective Willard, does get on to him about like, well, he needs to ask and he needs to pay attention and write it down and take it seriously. So after several things happening that she tries to report and, you know, Officer Meadows is dismissive, but Detective Willard, poor guy, when he has time, is like, yeah, that, that is a serious crime and problem. Eventually things start getting evened out and they start taking her more seriously, all of the entire police force. Um, it may not, you know, be drug factory mafia happenings or something, but crime is crime, especially in the dairy community, you know, um, letting out animals so maybe it would get hit, um, you know, deliberately sabotaging farm equipment. That's very dangerous and expensive things to have happen. The title uh, comes from the book. It's not just like a summary of it, you know, as a title. But you actually see that phrase used until um, the cows come home in the book, especially on the last page. It takes on a whole new kind of meaning. The readability. There is a continuous stream of happenings you know, in the book that keeps the reader on their feet. The first is Cleopatra Cow. She gets electrocuted in the middle of the field. Then the electricity to the farm is cut. Then Gus the bull calf is hung in his hutch. Then a gate gets unlocked. Queenie the dog goes missing. Then the barn burns down by arson. Like this is obvious. At this point in the book, the police are really starting to take, like it's it's no longer just seemingly little things. This is like getting to be very dangerous and people almost die. Um, then her insurance apparently has been canceled three days prior by some unknown person. Then a murder. Then an... You know, then an attempted murder on Stella's life, and then it nearly ends again with almost Stella's you know, second attempt on her life, but then another person dies. Um, there's a recap of events and things going on uh, on page 192-93 when they go after someone that they think is involved. Um, there's a couple of kind of moving quotes there, as you will see in the opening discussion by the author, where she thanks people that helped her with writing this series. Um, she clearly did her research, as she mentions, because you see that in how she describes things. So one of the very moving quotes on page 10 is describing like how bad, you know, what, what the problems and struggles of farmers have, even dairy farmers. So not just crops, but animals too. Pam shook her head. Dad goes into debt deeper every year, has a bad crop, has to borrow to make up for what he didn't make. Then the next year, the bank won't lend him as much because his profit was so low. In fact, we have an application in at the bank as we speak. Should be hearing any day. Not that I expect anything. And then Pam says, rather ominously, as we kind of noticed with the blueberry quote, you know, where someone pre-threatens murder on someone who actually does die later. Um, then we have a threat here. Don't worry. 
he gives me papers, my dad will run him over with a tractor. So because there's a developer in town, so Pam's like, don't worry. If he gives me papers trying to offer the farm for the farm, my dad will run him over. Because that's a really big part of this uh, story is people selling out because the debt becomes so much you can't afford to farm anymore. So another quote on page 217. This kind of gives you the more, you know, the human support, you know, real life, down to earth, nitty gritty. So without another word, Jethro stomped to his truck where he opened the back door and gently helped Ma step down. I hadn't seen her through the high window. She walked over to me and put her hands on my face. You're going to be all right, Stella. I hope so, Ma. There may be a point when you feel your soul breaking, but you'll get through it. Just trust and the strength will come. Thanks, Ma. I'll be praying. She'd be praying. Having Ma pray for you was like having the Pope as your cousin. So I felt a little more confident about toughing out the next difficult days. Now, plausibility on why I'm getting involved. Well, unlike our kind of one-off where it wasn't happening on the property, but the person still gets involved because it's their friend, which is Candy Holiday. This time, what we have getting involved is because her farm is under her attack. Um, once again, this is back to happening on her property, to her stuff, to her people, to her animals. Things keep getting worse and worse throughout the book on the level of, you know, sabotage attacks, and she actually loses someone she loves. Um, plausibility and guessability. The co-op sees her disappear from their records a year ago. Um, someone that she knows gets shot uh, for the questions they were asking. Um, it, then she starts following and looking and she starts finding secret facilities. She starts thinking, maybe the kids were getting sick. Is this something to do with what's going on here that I've just discovered? Um, because the symptoms are about long-term poisoning, not just like someone just released a batch of something in town, like in one loaf of bread or one jar of jam or, you know, one crop and it's just one bad batch, but we're going to be through it. This is like long-term happenings. Who's doing this? Why are they trying to harm the town? The outcome at the end, when it all gets wrapped up, it is so sad. Um, there's a lot more violence and suspense maybe like directly happening on the page than most may expect from a traditional cozy mystery. But this was a good book. Um, once again, as I noticed was a trend in this set of books we looked through, there were so many people involved that was actually happening, which is why it's going to be so hard as a reader for you to figure out who and what is going on. Like, who did what crime? Who did the other crime? How many people are involved? And how many crimes are actually going to happen before we can stop? Um... It also kind of ramps up the tension, though, by doing that, by having more than one perpetrator. Excuse me. And, and at the end, as each culprit keeps getting caught, crimes explained and eliminated, but yet more things keep happening, so, you know, more people are involved. So it's really sad at the end. Overall, personal opinion about whether I would read more in the series. Um, while the crime itself makes sense in the sense, you know, you're getting people's emotions and livelihoods and family and friends involved in some ways it is a little far-fetched because you're like i'm not sure you know i haven't really seen this particular crime happen before but i'm not saying it could um definitely with the way they have it set up you know someone's greed someone being off their rocker and then you know other people their own greed and their own desires getting involved and being played preyed upon and played upon by other people that certainly is human um but my overall opinion it sucked me in, and I read it in one sitting in one evening. So I'd love to read more. Um, and despite how the cover looks, it's not as cutesy as some of the more 
modern and recent cozy mysteries. Um, it is a good series. Um, my favorites overall were Judy Clemens, B.B. Haywood, and Wendy Tyson. Um, if you have a favorite or suggestion, feel free to post it in the comments. But we'll be back again next month with Halloween theme. Thanks for listening.